about how that really just consumed Paul's attitude, his thankfulness throughout the book of Philippians. I say last time, it was two weeks ago, because I didn't preach last week. The same holds true for the passage we're going to talk about today, which is again in Philippians. And we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 1 and the next passage, which is verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. We'll open with a word of prayer. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And it reads, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Start out with a little story. There was a lady who served as a professor for a particular medical school. She's the type of professor that takes it upon herself to go above and beyond for her students. She seeks out opportunities to provide study sessions. Her office door is always open. She even frequents the areas on campus where the students congregate just to encourage them and let them know of her willingness to help in any way she can. Now, I'm sure we'd be hard pressed to find any administrator who wouldn't say, I wish I had 10 professors just like her professional, compassionate, driven to protect and advance the profession. Unfortunately, this professor's supervisor, her department head, changed three times in the last five years. The office seems to have a revolving door. Everyone who previously occupied the position left the university with hold burned into their pants. And no, no, not some form of abuse. It's just that the seat that they sat on, the seat they occupied was so hot, it was impossible for them to be comfortable in the role. 
The most recent department head figured it was better to protect himself rather than to do what was best for his staff and for his profession. One day, a student of this professor violated the privacy policy at a local hospital. This professor, knowing the seriousness of the violation, addressed the situation with the student, informing the student of the consequences and instructing them on measures to take in order to prevent the issue from occurring again. This department head, however, saw this as an opportunity to remove what he perceived as a threat to his job security. As crazy as it may sound, he went out of his way to ensure that this professor's contract would not be renewed at the medical school, even though the professor did nothing wrong. Despite this, the professor stuck around and intending to fulfill the obligations of her current contract, she did. That very year, this professor won two awards, highlighting her excellence in teaching and her excellence as a faculty member. It's an interesting story. It's a true story. And it reminds me that difficult circumstances oftentimes leads us to be discouraged. Our situations seem to take a turn for the worse. Those around us who we thought were there to help end up being self-centered, opposing us at every corner. Who would blame us for assuming that it was better to cut ties as soon as humanly possible to avoid any suffering? Why stay somewhere you're not wanted, right? In some cases, we find ourselves wondering if God is really active in our lives. Considering the whirlwind of pain and hardship we seem to experience every single day. In our text, we find that Paul has faced a comparable situation. He was persecuted for all the wrong reasons. Stone, drug outside city walls, left for dead. Whipped repeatedly. And imprisoned, forget this, the charge of proclaiming Christ. But rather than be discouraged, rather than find him down and depressed, we find Paul Rejoicing. Paul, near the end of his Roman imprisonment, wrote a letter to the brothers and sisters of Philippi, informing them that the gospel was advancing, even in his current circumstance. The wonderful thing about Paul's experience is that it provides us, you and I, with encouragement. Knowing God will advance his gospel knowing God will accomplish his purposes no matter the circumstance. But how? How does God do it? 
How does God advance his gospel? How does God in this life, in this world, accomplish his purpose? These seven verses display, from my count, five ways. I'm sure another more seasoned preacher could find 20 in it. At least five ways. Five mechanisms in which our Lord accomplishes his purpose. As we study the passage, it becomes apparent that Paul is situated in a place that you and I would no doubt consider detrimental to the cause. He's a missionary, is he not? A missionary to the Gentiles, we read in Scripture. And he embarked on what was to become a missionary journey, did he not? And yet here he is imprisoned, unable to venture from city to city as he once had. I think we can all say he's not where he would like to be. But like Paul, be encouraged knowing you can trust God has already placed you where you need to be. In verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Let's not forget that what happened to Paul didn't happen overnight. It all began with him yearning to visit the saints in Rome. Little did he know the circumstances in which his desire would ultimately be satisfied. Knowing the Jews remaining in Jerusalem were suffering and in need, Paul returned there to present a contribution for the poor and offerings to the temple. And despite following all the customs of the time, his Reputation of being a follower, an apostle of Christ, led Jewish leaders to arrest him, to interrogate him before their council. They rained question after question, accusation after accusation on Paul, yet his responses were all, well, biblical, sound, irrefutable. He appealed to the beliefs of the crowd showing he too was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, like most of them were, and preaching the resurrection from the dead like many of them believed. Yet despite his rock-solid defense, Paul was still not freed. That very night, Christ appeared to Paul and offered words of comfort. Our Lord said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so he does. He declares this, I confess to you that according to the way which they, the Jews, call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He testifies before Felix and still remains in prison. 
He preaches the gospel to Drusilla, yet still remains in chains. And when Festus takes over, he preaches the same Christ. And when Agrippa the king said to Paul, you have permission to speak, Paul considered himself fortunate to preach the same Christ who told him on that road to Damascus to rise and stand upon your feet. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. These Jews sought to kill Paul. They were willing to do whatever it took to protect their own standing with the government, their own status among the people. And after numerous trials and testimonies, Paul is finally sent to Rome, where his hope is to appear before the emperor. Yet instead, he finds himself spending years imprisoned, having yet to be convicted of any crime worthy of punishment. That's a tough road, isn't it? In fact, I can't see a tougher road than what he's going through. Though things may seem grim at first glance, his circumstances, whether they be the various trials of his imprisonment, led to opportunities to share his testimony and the gospel of Christ. At each point, he had a captive audience. They had no choice but to listen to Paul. Likewise, our circumstances, our predicaments, expose us to certain audiences, grant us opportunities to speak with those we might not otherwise have had a chance to speak with. And to share with them such truth that they desperately need to hear. It could be the supervisor on our jobs, the TSA screener at the airport, the officer that stopped us along the highway. It could be our own children, our parents, our spouses or friends. There is no circumstance, no predicament, no situation in which God cannot work in the midst of. God can and will use you right where you are because he's placed you exactly where you need to be. It's a wonderful thing. Trusting God to position you for his purposes. But thankfully, he doesn't stop there. Yes, God placed Paul in prison. 
but he placed them in a prison supervised by the imperial guard. In other words, Paul was imprisoned in the governor's palace. Verse 13 reads, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul knew he had to go to Rome. Christ told him he would go to Rome. His desire, his yearning was to go to Rome. But he didn't expect to go as a prisoner. But he shows us that you can trust God will exalt you in times of distress. Though circumstance may be unexpected, interactions you have with those involved show them not just who you are, but the God you serve. The love and patience you display are evidences of the Lord's working in your life. God uses these difficult situations to testify of himself, how he preserves his own. Those who you will speak, rather those who see you, will speak highly of you, even though you may be in the worst of predicaments. How often have we seen that? Those who are blind to our circumstances, those who know nothing about what's going on in our lives, see us and think everything's okay. want to be like us, desire to have what we have. How can this person be so joyous, so excited? How can they hold a smile on their face all the time? I'm reminded of the story of Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, sold into slavery by his own brothers, purchased by an Egyptian officer and forced to serve in his house. Despite Joseph's predicament, that Egyptian officer, his master, saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to prosper, to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his master's sight and became overseer of the entire house and everything his master owned. God exalted Joseph in his distress. Even when Joseph was imprisoned because of the false accusation of his master's wife, God was still at work. God placed Joseph in a new predicament so that he would have, get this, a greater audience. Now, seated in the king's prison, in Pharaoh's prison, God grants him favor with the jailer. He gets placed in charge of all prisoners and finds himself interpreting the dream of the king's baker and the king's cupbearer. And his faithfulness in this predicament leads him to interpret the dream of Pharaoh himself. Brothers, Sisters, 
lest we forget, be reminded that this is something he may never have had the chance to do had he not been wrongly imprisoned. And yet here he is. Upon interpreting Pharaoh's dream, proposing a solution to avoid starvation for the entire nation during this coming famine, God exalted Joseph to be a ruler over Egypt. We know the rest of that story, don't we? How this be this being the very mechanism by which God himself preserves his people, Israel. Preserves the children of Jacob. Multiplies them throughout Egypt. Even after being beaten. Shipwrecked and imprisoned. God exalted Paul, raising him exactly where he needed to be. God placed Paul in the governor's palace despite him being a prisoner. Each time his situation seemed hopeless, God gave him favor among those who were placed over him. What then shall we say to these things, says Paul in Romans? If God is for us, who can be against us? No. This is no cause to be proud, no cause to poke our chest out and demand what we deserve. The Apostle Peter bids us clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. For God opposes, opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He continues, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Brothers, sisters, again, I say, trust God, because he will exalt you, even in the worst of circumstances. No matter what the situation is, you and I can rejoice in that fact. How marvelous it is to see how God is glorified. Even when we suffer wrongly, God has us right where he wants us to be. Even when we're full of distress, God's grace abounds. And what's even more exciting is that he does it all for a reason. Paul's imprisonment was for the cause of Christ. And his situation became well known to the imperial guard and everyone else. And because of his example, you too can trust that God will give you courage. Speak truth. To remain faithful to proclaim the good news without fear. Verse 14 reads, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says that his circumstances 
his predicament, all this suffering that he has endured to this point has turned out for the greater good of the gospel. Because of his faithfulness and effectiveness in the midst of his circumstance, others now take courage. Proclaiming the gospel. They no longer fear persecution because they see with their own eyes how God preserved and exalted Paul in the darkest of conditions. Daniel here likes baseball. So I'm going to use a baseball illustration. If that's okay. Carrie said it's okay. Anybody watch Major League Baseball? I see some hands up. It's impressive, isn't it? By far, for me anyway, one of the most interesting aspects of the game is the psychological warfare. The strategies that the pitcher and catcher use on poor little unsuspecting bats. When a guy is throwing a 90 plus mile an hour fastball, high and inside, seems like a recipe for disaster, does it not? Can you imagine that ball getting away from the pitcher, hitting a right-handed batter in the shoulder or in the rib cage? I'd have to imagine that the bones would shatter in an instant. Knowing that possibility, that pitcher and that catcher still planned to pitch that 90 mile an hour fastball high and inside. The anticipation of having to face that pitcher would keep me up at night. If you know about my little league baseball career, you realize it didn't take 90 miles an hour to keep me up at night. While watching film all week, looking for the slightest sign or tell to know what's coming, all that gets noticed is batter after batter following the five Ds of dodgeball. Duck, dip, dive, 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 and dodge. We know them, right? We'll thank Patrick O'Houlihan for that one, but I'll leave it alone. But now your team's playing this, this guy. Let's say it's the playoffs. Let's say it's a winner go home situation. Bases loaded. Your team's at bat. And rather than shy away from the pitcher who's been aggressive all game, your teammate chokes up on that bat, hugs the plate, and stares that pitcher down. And here it comes. This pitcher says, I can get him to back off. Catcher gives him the signal. And that 90 plus mile an hour high and inside fastball comes zoom. And it strikes the bat. Left shoulder. Causing him to drop the bat. Fall to the ground. And all you hear in the dugout is a scream. A scream the likes you've never heard before. Something was different. It wasn't a scream of agony. It wasn't pain 
that led to this scream. He was celebrating. Because him getting hit by that pitch advanced the tying run. That's courage. That's courage without fear. Not only that, the next batter can now approach that plate with a higher level of resolve. He's no longer afraid. Because the one weapon, the one weapon that pitcher thought he had, has now been defeated. So he boldly and courageously, fearlessly steps to that plate and he can do it because he knows the game can be won. You and I, we generally grow more comfortable, more confident through experience and in some cases through another person's example. Paul experienced persecution for the gospel. He went through more than you and I can imagine, yet he still proclaimed Christ crucified with courage and without fear. And others, seeing his example, sought to imitate that. God, since the beginning of time, has shown his willingness to preserve his people. You can trust God will preserve you too. Not only will he preserve you, you can trust that God will give you the courage necessary to advance his purpose. He's given us his word. He's called us to this wonderful fellowship in Christ full of brothers and sisters who serve as examples and help us to grow in the faith. I know the thoughts. Life's never that easy. You don't know my struggle, my circumstances, what I have to deal with day in and day out. Unfortunately, it seems like the more progress we feel we make, the more opposition we begin to face. Has anybody experienced that? In our weakness, the Christian falls on his face. Ask God, Lord, help me endure. And then what follows? We muster up our strength. We put a smile on our face. And we pray, Lord, I hope my attitude and my behaviors glorify you. Yet others, sadly, yes, even professing Christians, would seem to make a mockery of that. more focused on attacking or discrediting you, thinking it would somehow justify them, validate them, maybe even generate some kind of cult following 
to them. But history tells us to trust God. Trust that he can even use the enemy to accomplish his purposes. Verses 15 through 17 read, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. You see, those brothers, those brothers who became more confident in the Lord by Paul's imprisonment are the same brothers he refers to here. Paul tells us that not all who proclaim the gospel, not all who become emboldened to speak the word, did it for the right reason. Some sought selfish gain. Could have been money, status, some other unloving reason. It could have simply been to make them feel better about themselves. We don't know. To make their choice, their decision seem more right. One pastor puts it this way. He says, one of the most discouraging experiences for a servant of God is that of being falsely accused by fellow believers, especially co-workers in the church. To be maligned by an unbeliever is expected. To be maligned by another believer is unexpected. Pain runs deep. When a person's ministry is slandered, misrepresented, and unjustly criticized, by another, get this, who claims to hold to and to teach the same gospel. Is it difficult to imagine that Christians, brothers and sisters made confident in the Lord could be prompted to act by motives of envy? And selfish ambition? Is that so hard to imagine? The very history of the church itself makes plain that such a contradiction, no matter how distressing it may be, is not rare at all. Yes, God can use the enemy to accomplish his pur purposes. Look at the story of Job. Or maybe the story of Balaam of Beor, who was paid to curse the people of God, but could only bless them. Or Assyria, the rod of God's anger. The Lord says, the staff in their hand is my fury against a godless nation I send them. That godless nation was Israel, whose kings and priests had fallen into idolatry. We can fast forward to the years of Christ's earthly ministry, how 
It was the opposition who sought to kill him. It was the religious of his day who blindfolded him and struck him. It was the chief priest who turned him over to Pilate and rallied the crowd to chant, crucify him, crucify him. And yet even that was no accident. Even that was part of God's plan. Their wickedness advanced God's purpose. But this, this was different. You see, we know Satan is the enemy. We know Balaam was corrupt. And we certainly know the Assyrians were worse idolaters and enemies of God than, well, any other nation we can think of. But Paul tells us that these are brothers. Not Judaizers or troublemakers preaching a different gospel like in Galatia. Not false apostles invading the church at Corinth. Paul says that these are brothers. These are Christians who sadly have used Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to advance their personal agendas. Brothers and sisters, think long and hard. How often have you knocked another ministry down? A gospel preaching ministry, a Christ exalting ministry, criticize them for a non-essential simply to justify your decision to go where you went or to be where you are. Paul does something unique here. In a very balanced way, he describes these two groups. No, we can't identify who they are. And everything that Paul tells us speaks more to the heart rather than to doctrine. The one group speaks the word from goodwill, out of love, and in truth. The other speaks from envy, out of selfish ambition, and in pretense. But why? Why does Paul take time to share this with us? Why does he expose on the one hand without exposing on the other? Why not call out names? And if you won't call out names, why bother sharing any of this to begin with? It's likely that Paul writes about these people who had wrong motives to make clear that such people do exist even within the Christian community and that the Philippian Christians and likewise you and I should not be surprised in the least when such people arise in our midst. Paul does not complain. 
neither should we. The very thing that is Paul's chief aim, the very task that he himself was called to take up continues anyhow. Verse 18 says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that. I rejoice. Trust God will accomplish his purpose. Don't be discouraged when you see others doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Don't bother getting upset when they do it to drag you down. Rejoice. Because God uses even them to accomplish his purpose. Yes, in this you can rejoice. Rejoice because he positions you. Rejoice because he exalts you. Rejoice in the courage that our Lord provides. Rejoice that his purposes will not be derailed. In all these things rings true the great Yet simple fact, you can trust God is faithful to those who love him. Let's not forget the words of our Lord from the beginning. The night after Paul stood before the council in Jerusalem, Christ said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God's plan was for Paul to go to Rome for this specific purpose. And while the path may not have been as smooth as Paul would have liked, God saw him through to the end. Remember Abraham being promised a son, despite he and Sarah being well beyond childbearing years. Yet God remained faithful And because of God's faithfulness, Abraham didn't hesitate. When told by God to offer his son on the altar. And what does he say to his servants? He says, stay here. Isaac and I will go over there. We'll worship. And then we'll return to you. Because he knew both of them would return. Because God had displayed his faithfulness time and time again. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Rest easy. Rest easy knowing that God has not forsaking you. He's placed you in Christ, in fellowship with Christ. And I am sure of this. Oh, Lord knows I am so sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Do you trust him? Y'all are quiet. Do you trust God to be faithful and see things through to the end? It's okay to talk. It's okay to say it out loud. 
Think about your situation right now. Everything that you're currently going through, the sickness, it's taking hold of your body unexpectedly. And here you are, suffering in pain, yet you worship. The difficulty at work or at school, the constant struggle just to keep up with assignments, your family, your job, the struggles in ministry, no matter how faithful you are, no matter how loving you strive to be, the loudest voices are the naysayers, the criticizers. Yet you worship. Be encouraged. God has placed you right where he wants you to be. Trust him. There's something greater at work. Get this. He is the greater at work. No, it's hard to see right now. But trust him. Trust God. He will lift you up in due time. And he will accomplish the purposes he has for you. And what's so wonderful about it is that your circumstances will not hinder God. He, who did not spare his own son, Paul says, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, that is Christ, graciously give us all things? And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. As the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, all who trust in him, will not be put to shame. Let's pray.